from Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. Paul writes to the Colossian church, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent the person of the Holy Spirit upon us. Thank you that we're in a season of Pentecost and we're just considering deeply the person of the Holy Spirit and everything that he seeks to do in our lives. And so we just uh, lift this time to you, Father, and we pray that you'll help us to, to, to grasp more of your love, of your power, of your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, these three amazing verses in the first chapter of the book of Colossians are all about power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder how you feel about the prospect of receiving power. We've heard a lot in the last few years about wrong use of power, about abusive power, but Paul isn't talking about this kind of power at all. He's speaking here of a power which means three things. First of all, that we can know God in our lives. Secondly, that we can bear fruit and have impact. And thirdly, that we can endure the storms of life which come upon us. And he wants each one of you to know those three things. I wonder if this kind of power is a reality to you in your faith life. I wonder if it's something that you welcome. You see, Paul doesn't write of our being filled with the Holy Spirit as a given. It's not a given, but he longs for it. He writes about it here in the subjunctive tense. He prays that the Colossians may be filled. In other words, he lives hopefully in that expectation. He sees it as the desired norm for our lives, and he prays continually for the Colossians for it, because he knows that only the filling of the Holy Spirit will bring the fullness of life of which Jesus spoke. But we're not always open to receiving power. Sometimes we think there's a catch, or actually, that we're doing perfectly well under our own head of steam. In the 1920s, the electricity board in the north of England introduced electricity to new areas through a particular new grid. And some of the farmers were enthusiastic about this, and some of them were quite skeptical. And there was one elderly woman who was particularly enthusiastic about the new electricity in her home. But after a while, the electricity board noticed that 
she was kind of using it minimally. And so some baffled electricity officials went, went round to her house, and uh, she said that electricity was wonderful. She said it was terrific, because when it got dark, she could put the lights on, find the matches, light the candles, and then switch the lights off again. And sometimes it's a little bit like that with us, with the Holy Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit in emergencies, but not till then. And Paul sees the filling of the Holy Spirit as completely normative to a dynamic, empowered Christian life. And he writes here in this ESV translation, as in the original, in a single sentence. It's like this sentence is a kind of mighty wave approaching the seashore and gradually unfurling. And it describes the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It's as if, first of all, the Spirit is glimpsed appearing on the horizon and then kind of drawing closer, increasing in scale and impact, and then becoming that kind of powerful wave that we can catch and ride forward. So that sentence passes from our being filled, which might be a very gradual and gentle thing, to a kind of increasing sense of the power of this wave as it kind of crests. And here Paul, speaking of the Spirit, he talks of our being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, which is literally in the original, empowered with all power according to his powerful glory. That's three uses of the word power in a single clause. That's a lot of power available to you and I, and he wants us to know it. So let's dig further into what this power is for, because it's never simply for power per se. And the first thing that Paul says it's for is for knowing God. He writes, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We need to receive the gospel and we need to know what God's loving plan is for each of our lives, what his loving purposes are, what his counsel is, his wisdom, and so on. We need to draw from the right source in our life. And that source is the Lord Jesus, who is our perfect teacher. Jesus in John 6.13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. We need a spiritual guide to truth. Often, uh, my family go on holiday to the Isle of Harris in the Outer of Hebrides, and we, we basically drive up to Scotland, head on to Skye, the Isle of Skye, go to the northernmost tip, and take the ferry to Harris. And um, a few years ago, I set the satnav for our Harris address, and it said uh, ferry route, and I pressed yes, because we always get the ferry over. And we headed up to Scotland, and the satnav took us on this new, beautiful peninsula on the west coast. We'd never been on it before. Utterly spectacular. And eventually, after a couple of hours, brought us to this jetty, and then the red line on the satnav continued along the jetty, and into the sea. And it had brought us to a ferry port. 
And if we'd been able to catch a ferry at that moment, the sat-nav proudly announced it would save us 37 minutes on our total journey to Harris. But the trouble was the ferry had gone a couple of hours earlier, and there wasn't another one for days. And we had to retrace our route back up that peninsula into central Scotland, and then back up the road to Skye. It was a five-hour diversion. We need a reliable guide to keep us going off course, to keep us going off-piste. And that reliable guide that God provides is the Holy Spirit. What happens if, we're, if we don't know that guide, if we're not filled by the Spirit? Well, Paul describes the danger a little bit later in the book, in chapter 2, 8, where he warns, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The Colossians have gone off track. They've got diverted. They've kind of wanted more than the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. They've reached for kind of esoteric, special, spiritual truths, which are not of Christ. And as a result, they've got into all kinds of trouble. Paul says all of that is false. Christ is supreme, and Christ is Lord. The thing is, we don't live in a spiritually neutral universe. If you're not filled with the Spirit, you're much less likely to be able to identify spiritual truth you're much more likely to be full of yourself or full of the spirit of this world. Paul recognizes the Holy Spirit, but in Ephesians 2.2, he also recognizes, quote, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's a false spirit. That's a false spirit who is an enemy to our soul. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, the truth of who Jesus is, and of his great love for you and for what he's done for you on the cross. Paul says this truth is pneumaticos. It's a truth of the spirit. And it doesn't bring us mere knowledge about God. No, God becomes a living reality in our lives. This isn't the kind of knowing where we become a, a walking encyclopedia. It's much more than that. It's about a relationship. It's about a changed perspective. And it comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. But this isn't something that we can engineer ourselves. Living here in Oxford, you can fill yourself with academic knowledge. You can't fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. That only comes about through the agency of God. Jesus says at the Last Supper, the Father will send the Spirit. We need to be filled from the outside. You can be filled with the fuel of the Holy Spirit, like a car is filled when you're empty. You can be filled when you need topping up. But you need to be filled from without. You can't be filled through self-realization. God sends his Spirit and the Spirit fills you. It's what the Spirit longs for, and it's what, therefore, Paul prays for with all his heart. Because there's a knowing that we can know in our minds, but there's a deeper knowing that we can know in our hearts. It's an intimate knowing. And the Lord wants us to know 
this knowing here, a knowing about Jesus Christ and a knowing about the Holy Spirit and the Father. The false spirit wants us to be led into false knowledge and confusion and captivity. And he works to engineer that after we've come to faith, when we're mature Christians, he works to do it before we ever come to faith. Before coming to faith, I was spiritually hungry. I was exploring Buddhism. I was exploring meditation, self-actualization, all these forms of Gnostic knowledge that Paul is actually protesting against here in the letter to the Colossians. Because there's self-fulfillment without surrender to Jesus Christ. And then I felt drawn to go to church again. And one Sunday, um, I walked into a church where uh, the leader of our church, Stephen, used to minister. And immediately, I felt a difference. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the vicar, Sandy Miller, he uh, actually gave a talk that day about the Holy Spirit. And I learned about the third person of the Godhead, who he is and why he's come. I learned that the Holy Spirit is the living presence of God, alive and active in our lives here today. And Sandy Miller, following Jesus, said, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happened to me, it changed everything. The Holy Spirit instantly pointed me to the true north of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, all avenues of false knowledge lost their attraction. And I realized why I'd never experienced God as alive and active in the church I was sometimes taken to in my youth. Because the people there, the people worshiping, were not spirit-filled. They were lovely people, good people, nice people. But in that church, God was, wasn't somebody that you knew intimately as a friend or a spouse. He was simply someone you knew about. The people there weren't living a dynamic, spirit-filled life. Then secondly, the Holy Spirit fills us so that we bear fruit and so that we can have impact in our lives. Because what's the point, really, of a knowing which doesn't lead to an acting? It's just a kind of knowledge that leads nowhere. But God gives the Spirit, quote, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. The missionary David Livingston once asked the famous 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, how do you manage to do the work of two men in a single day? Because Spurgeon was known as a, a bit of a Hercules in terms of the amount of work he could get through in 24 hours. And Spurgeon replied, you forget that the, there are two of us and the one you see the least of often does the most work. The Holy Spirit is our invisible partner and he seeks to energize everything that we do for the Lord, everything that is in the kingdom. And interestingly, the passage says that as we bear fruit, Paul says we will grow further in the knowledge of God. 
It's not that we grow in the knowledge of God and then we bear fruit, and it, that's always the way it works around. It's, it's cyclical, Paul says. As we live out fruitful lives, we grow deeper in our knowing of the heart of the Father. In short, the Holy Spirit transforms us. Immediately before training for ordination, I I worked for an organization in London called the School of Life, and um, it defined itself like this, as a global organization helping people to lead more fulfilled lives through useful resources and tools. It's a bit like church, really, in some ways. And I used to write and deliver practical courses which drew on thinking from areas like ethics and philosophy and um, uh, psychology and anthropology, uh, courses with titles like How to Make Love Last, How to Be a Good Friend, How to Make a Difference. And it was secular work that I absolutely loved. And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit started tugging on my heart, calling me to get ordained. And I felt conflicted, because I was loving the work I was doing. What did ordination represent? Of course, serving Jesus, and that was tremendously exciting. But also, giving up our home in London, and heading to another city to train, and taking a salary cut, and embracing an uncertain future. And eventually, I I presented these two paths to the Lord, and I said, you know, how should I think about this? And what I heard him say was this. You can keep doing what you're doing, but you won't change. You won't grow. And when he said that, it kind of seized my heart with terror, because I wanted to spiritually grow. He wasn't making a comment about secular work versus ordained work. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was to do with what his particular purposes were for my life and that he could only fulfill if I followed his leading by his spirit. The Holy Spirit longs for you to be fruitful and to live an outward-facing life. The false spirit longs for you to be ineffective, to stall in your knowledge of God and to cease to grow. Paul talks about the kind of Colossian believer who's not filled with the Holy Spirit and who's gone off track. He says that person is still in the Colossian church, but he's not aligned with Jesus. He's not aligned with Jesus as the head of the church. He writes, Paul says, that this person has lost connection with the heart from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. If you don't want to grow, don't pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, interestingly, Paul's verses also imply that such a filling can be for the first time or for the 20th time, because he prays continually for the Colossians. For Paul, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-off event. It's a daily invitation to grow further in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the Spirit comes to make us resilient in tough times. My colleague Simon Ponsonby has spoken about the Greek clause here, literally empowered by the power of his mighty or powerful glory. 
And the words for power and powerful there, dunamis and kratos, they're used three times in this clause. Paul says that the Spirit makes the glory of God manifest in our lives, visible, so that we shine. A bit like the face of Moses shines in Exodus 34 when he's been in the presence of God. What an incredible prospect. What an amazing invitation about the life-changing power of the Spirit. Is this just a kind of spiritual giddiness I'm speaking of? Because sometimes Christians can be a bit giddy about the Holy Spirit. Not Paul here as he talks about the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He's being utterly realistic about the Christian life. He's talking about the reality of spiritual battle, in fact. He says that the Spirit empowers us with endurance and patience. Because what is the point in knowing and acting if when the storms of life come, you can't stand firm and overcome? We need each, three, each one of these gifts that he's talking about. Bearing fruit for Jesus, you're going to know opposition in your life from time to time. And you can't live a transformed life if you're knocked off course whenever trouble comes. The Spirit empowers us to persist and for breakthrough. And this doesn't happen through some kind of false gritting of our teeth. Paul talks about it happening through a kind of glory strength which is given to us. A bit like when Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned, and you'll remember his face shines like an angel. There's been a brilliant book published in recent years um, about the explosive growth of the early church and um, in the first few centuries. It's by a professor of church history and mission called Alan Crider. And the book's title is this, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And that says two things. One of all, first of all, he talks about the lives of the believers post-Pentecost being like fermentation, like bubbling up with life and impact. But then he also says that the key mark of the Spirit upon those early Christians was the quality, the virtue of patience, which enabled them to persist and endure in the face of massive opposition and challenge, not to deviate not to be distracted, not to be demoralized, but power to endure. The false spirit seeks to immobilize you, leaving you defeated. The Holy Spirit longs to impart spiritual resilience to you. He wants you to shine with the glory of God, even in tough situations. And he wants to give you words so that when you're attacked, you have words to respond with. The Holy Spirit is the power source that each one of us needs. A.J. Gordon, who was a famous Baptist preacher in the late 19th century, he once went to the World Fair in Chicago, and across the huge hall of exhibits, he saw this striking sight. He saw a man turning a crank with all his might and the crank was attached to a pump, and the pump sent this huge torrent of water 
continually forwards into this wooden trough. And then as Gordon got nearer to the man, he saw that he was actually a life-size wooden puppet. And he wasn't driving the water. It was the water driving him. And Gordon says it's a little bit like that with the spirit. There's an abundance of power available. And we often think that we can somehow catch hold of the power of the spirit. But it's actually the power of the spirit that catches hold of us. So how do you get caught hold of by the Holy Spirit? Basically, you position yourselves aright in relation to the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul says we press in and we pray. You need spiritual appetite and then you need to ask continually, just like Paul is asking continually for the Colossians here. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to have a time of prayer because the Holy Spirit is generous. He's here available with abundant power and he wants each one of us to have a fruitful, joy-filled lives. Let's come together and pray and stand.